great privilege to come and preach to you. Uh, perhaps maybe the last time in a long while that I'll be preaching to you here at Redeemer. And um, I, I just want to say, first of all, that I'm grateful for you as a church, uh, your partnership in the gospel over the last seven years. I'm especially grateful for Dave and for Dave's uh, partnership from those early days, even before you all were gathering with us, when it was just Dave and I and Max Stiles. And uh, we were dreaming and praying, and what, look what lo- the Lord has done. And Dave, I am so grateful for your partnership, such that uh, I don't think I would be ready to go plant a church on the other side of the city if you hadn't uh, poured into me and shared that ministry with me. I've learned a lot from you. So um, thank you, and thank you all. Um, before we get into God's Word, um, I want to pray for us. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When was the last time you got to go to a parade? Just about everyone loves parades. They're festive occasions. They're places where we like to take our children Just about everyone enjoys the spectacle of a parade. There's usually decorated cars, there's marching bands, sometimes there's clowns. But parades haven't always been places for children and fun. At least not everyone. Especially not in the ancient world, because the ancient world was where parades originated. Parades originated as military power and demonstrations of conquest. And in our passage today, Paul paints a picture of a victory parade that's happened after a war, and its participants might surprise you. Now, before we jump into this passage, I want to tell you just a little bit about 2 Corinthians so that you understand what has come before these verses. Corinth was a city in what is present-day Greece. It was Greece back then as well, of course. It was wealthy. It was an important city. And much like Dubai, it was filled with many different cultures and a mixture of different religions. And Corinth was a particularly immoral place as well. Now the church in Corinth was divided. They were divided against themselves. And they were struggling with immorality in their midst. And that's what prompted Paul to write the book of 1 Corinthians. But now Paul is writing another letter to them. And he's writing to them in a very personal and impassioned way. You see, there are are other so-called apostles who have infiltrated the Corinthian church. And they are impressive in their speech. They're impressive in their appearance. And they didn't think too highly of Paul. So Paul is both defending his integrity and his apostleship in this letter... And he's also explaining to them why he has not come to visit the Corinthians as he'd hoped to. So he begins his letter explaining why he and his team have suffered for Christ in their ministry. Now, suffering and hardship were not impressive to the Corinthians. Suffering looked like failure to them. It looked like a lack of divine blessing. It certainly didn't square up with who these super apostles were in their midst. But Paul is teaching them a very important lesson that Christians follow in the footsteps of a suffering Savior. This is God's way. 
the way of the cross. Turn with me, if you don't already have your Bibles opened, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And just because it's a short passage, I'm going to read it just one more time for us. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now the big idea that I want us to see when we look at these verses this morning is this. God spreads the knowledge of himself through Christians... Because we are the prize won through his victory on the cross. Let me say that one more time if you want to write that down. God spreads the knowledge of himself through Christians because we are the prize won through his victory on the cross. And as we look down through verses 14 through 17, I want to look at it in three different sections. And these are the titles for these three sections. The first is God's victorious parade. That's verse 14. God's victorious parade. Secondly, in verses 14 through 16, the smell of the Savior. The smell of the Savior. And thirdly, in verses 16 through 17, God's sincere messengers. So that's our outline. And we'll begin with God's victorious parade, which is right there in verse 14. Of course, just preceding it are verses 12 and 13. And there, Paul is explaining how he arrived in the city of Troas, again, a very important city. And when he was there, he had great opportunity to share the gospel. But he was not at peace. He was unsettled in his spirit because his ministry partner Titus was not there. And so Paul felt at liberty in the Lord to move on and travel on to Macedonia, presumably to find Titus because Titus would have been able to bring him news about what was happening in the church in Corinth. And so by explaining this, he's telling the Corinthians, I care about you. And then abruptly in verse 14, Paul breaks into thanksgiving and he describes the life of an apostle and a Christian with a vivid metaphor. It is a Roman victory parade, this triumphal procession. You see, when Rome had uh, won a military campaign and the troops were returning from battle, the emperor would declare a day of celebration that was called a triumph. And that triumph involved a big parade, which would mark, march into the city. And in that city, the victorious army was led by the general, and they would, they would parade through the streets. The streets would be lined with people cheering on either side of them. At the very front of the parade would be the Roman senators. They would be dressed all in white. And then following the senators would be dancers and singers. They would be dancing and singing praises to the gods who had granted them victory in the battle. And then next would come the trophies of war, the physical trophies of war, carrying things like maybe golden statues or pieces of treasured art that had been captured in the enemy's land. And then, finally, the prisoners of war 
were paraded through the city. They were in the middle of the parade, being driven by the victorious general, perhaps in a chariot with his troops behind him, some on horseback, some on foot. And all along the parade route, they were burning incense in honor of the gods. Burning incense and also burning sacrifices. They were slaughtering bulls and other animals and sacrificing them to their gods, again, to honor them for what the gods had done for them in the battle. And so it was a very smelly affair, this triumph. And most often when the triumph reached its destination in the city, something happened that you and I might not expect. They slaughtered the prisoners. They slaughtered the prisoners. And so you can imagine that if you were a prisoner marching in this triumph, this victory parade, that that smell of incense and the smell of burnt bull flesh would be the smell of impending death. Of course, if you were a soldier, you were perhaps the general, that smell would be the smell of victory and success. But surprisingly, Paul describes here in this passage that the victory parade is led by none other than God. God is leading this triumph. God is the one who's won. God is the one who's marching throughout all of history, as it were, with the conquered before him. And even more surprising, Paul is indicating that he, along with his ministry partners, are the captives. They are the captives in God's victory parade. Now this this may sound a little bit confusing to you to hear that we are the captives in this graphic metaphor that ends in death at the very end of the triumph. I don't know about you, but if I were in one of those parades, I would rather be anyone else other than the prisoners, of course. But Paul here depicts he and his partners as the captives. And you know what? It fits. It fits with one of the major themes of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And that is that the cross of Christ is the path to life. The cross of Christ is the path to life. Paul and his companions were experiencing suffering. They were experiencing hardship in their service of the Lord and in their ministry. And yet, they had new and eternal life in Christ. And they knew that even though one day they would physically die, they would rise again like Christ. You know, this is the same for Jesus, of course. It's not any different for him. Why should we expect anything different for ourselves? The path to resurrection led through the cross of death for Christ. Jesus told his disciples, in fact, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In Christ, you see, we are the conquered captives of God. But he conquers us to give us new life. He captures us in order to free us. We are the prizes of war which Christ went to battle for on the cross. And you and I must understand, you must understand that the crucifixion, which looked like a great defeat, was in actuality the climax of God's victory over sin And death and Satan, it was the turning point. 
Paul reminds us in another one of his letters in Colossians 2, verse 14. He says, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is, in Christ. Christ's death was the victory, and his resurrection proves it. It's as if throughout all of history, from Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve first were disobedient to the Lord and were banished from God's presence, that God has been unfolding His grand plan to wage war on the city of Satan. And through the centuries, the plan was hidden, but being set in place. And the final weapon was needed in this war against Satan, and it was being brought to the battlefront. You see, Jesus came. He lived a morally perfect life. He was sentenced to death for claiming to be God. He was nailed to the cross. And as Jesus breathed his last breath, it was as if a huge breach was blown open in the wall to the city of Satan. And God rushed in to save us, not conquer us. To save us, to capture us. You see, we had fought on Satan's side. We were enemies of God before we knew Him. But in Christ, He's offered us gracious terms of surrender. We are His grateful captives now being marched through life. Conquered, yes, but loved by God, our conqueror, and given eternal life in Him. Now, why did He conquer us? Of course, certainly to bring Him glory, like the general would have gotten glory as he marched these troops and the captured war booty through the Greek city. But Paul reminds us of something else. He tells us why God has conquered us, so to speak. He says in verse 14, Through us he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. You see, God triumphed over us in order that we might know him. Otherwise, we would not have. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, you're welcome here. Some people might think that they'd not be welcome in a church if they're not a Christian, but that's not true. You're particularly welcome here at Redeemer. I wonder what you think when we, as Christians, say that we know God. What do you think to yourself? Maybe that sounds a little bit arrogant, that we know God? Because, of course, when we say that we know God, we're also saying by implication that we think other people don't know God. And, of course, in, a, in Dubai, in a Corinth-like city like this place, it seems particularly divisive to say that we know God and in saying that, that others don't. But, you see, the Bible teaches from cover to cover that all people were made to know God. It's man's highest dignity and final fulfillment to know him. And as Christians, it's our greatest ambition and our greatest hope. But it's important that you understand what the Bible means when it says that we know God. What does it mean to know God? I want to tell you four points explaining what we mean when we say we know God. And the first three are going to be negative statements. The last, the fourth, will be a positive statement. First of all, knowing God isn't simply having an awareness of God. You see, all people are aware of God, whether they admit it or not. Every person has planted in them some seed of conviction about the presence of God. It's an impression 
to be honest, that they can't get, a, get away from, no matter how hard they try. Everyone is aware of God. The Bible, though, says that that's not enough to know God. Number two, knowing God is not simply having particular experiences. So, for example, you may be moved emotionally during a sermon or listening to a preacher online or maybe while singing a a moving song or maybe you're even comforted by a Bible verse every now and then. But that doesn't mean necessarily that you know God. Thirdly, knowing God is not simply knowing information about God. So knowing information about God is good. In fact, it's necessary for us to have true knowledge of God, but it's not enough. You can be a Bible scholar. In fact, you can memorize the Bible from front to back and still not truly know God. There are people out there like that. Now the fourth point is a positive statement. Knowing God involves responding to God and what he offers us in himself. It involves responding to God in what he offers us in himself. And that response, the Bible calls worship. Or you could call it love in action. Or you could call it adoration. And when someone worships and loves and adores God, it changes them. It transforms them. So true knowledge of God is not simply awareness of God. It's not experiences of God necessarily. It's not even information about God. And it must involve a response to what he offers us in himself. And if you take all four of these points, the Bible would summarize them as being in a covenanted relationship with God. That's what it means to know God truly. A covenant, you see, is a binding relationship based on promises made and trust given. You know what a a covenant relationship is because you know what marriage is. It's a relationship based on promises made and trust given. And that's what it means to truly know God, to be in a covenanted relationship with Him. So I ask you a very, very simple but very, very important question. Do you know God? Do you know Him? Do you know more than information about Him? Have you trusted Him? Have you responded to Him with a life of worship, with love, with adoration? Have you seen change in your life because of your relationship with Him based on His promises and your trust? If you haven't, or you don't know how, the only way that we can know God is to have Him reveal Himself to us. Normally, people would not know God. And not only that, but people are not naturally turned towards God. In fact, people aren't naturally inclined to have fellowship with God. They're not naturally inclined to love God. That's what the Bible teaches us. And so we need God to come to us. We need God to communicate with us. In fact, we need Him to go further. We need Him to capture us. To capture our hearts. And so God has done that. God has communicated to us by sending us His Son, Jesus. And this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that's still alive now and sitting at the right hand of God the Father, He is the way to know God. 
He is God's Word to us. And when we hear of Jesus and we learn of His promises and God's Spirit reaches into our hearts and pulls out those stony hearts and replaces them with hearts of flesh, hearts that can believe in Him, then we enter into a relationship with God and we know Him. We know Him. And when we do that, we're brought into God's victory parade. We step into that great parade that he's leading. And we, like Paul, are there for all the world to see and to smell. And to smell. And that brings us to the second point. Now that we know God through Christ, we smell like our Savior. Look back in the text with me at the end of verse 14 and then through verse 16. It says, through us God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So Paul takes this image of the smell of incense at a Roman triumph, and he explains that Paul, he, and his companions are spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. And he goes on to say that we are the aroma of Christ to God. Things that smell, of course, stay on our minds, don't they? Smell is powerful. If this room started smelling really, really bad, I dare say some of you would get up and walk out. Smell brings back memories for us. It affects our moods. Everything from dirty diapers on the one hand, which I have changed, and that is powerful, powerful smell. On the other hand, to a cologne or a perfume that we know and love. You know, even the places where we grew up, perhaps the home that you grew up in has a certain smell, doesn't it? And sometimes when I go back to visit my family and I stay there for a while, then I pack up my belongings and I come back to Dubai and we get here and I unpack my clothes and I smell my home, back home. Smell, they remind me of my home, they remind me of my family. And then, of course, there's food. There's food, and that is a powerful, powerful smell. I mean, what husband or wife or housemate hasn't walked into the house at the end of a long day and been lured into the kitchen by the smells wafting through the house. Smells are powerful. And if we know God, we begin to smell like our Savior Jesus. Paul says that we smell like Him. And we smell like Him to God and to those around us. Now it could be, it could be here that Paul is not only calling to mind the smells and sacrifices of this Roman triumph and the incense and burnt offerings that were happening there, but also perhaps the pleasing sacrifice that his son Jesus was when he went to the cross. Redeemer, you have just uh, sat through and listened to and been edified by a series through the book of Leviticus, which is is mostly and largely about burnt offerings and sacrifices and the laws of God about that. And perhaps you remember a phrase that's repeated over and over again in that book of Leviticus. It is that those burnt offerings were a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Do you remember that? All those sacrifices spoken about in the book of Leviticus and all those sacrifices made by the Israelites throughout all those centuries leading up 
to the life of Jesus pointed to Jesus, the final sacrifice, who was a pleasing aroma to the Lord when he went to the cross and sacrificed himself. So what does it mean to smell like Jesus, though? It's a vivid image, but what does it mean practically for you and I? Well, it means, first of all, that we love him, that we treasure him, and when we do, he begins to change us, and he changes our goals and our purposes in life. And that can stand out amidst our friends and colleagues and family and coworkers. It means that he changes our desires. Our desires are changed. It reminds me of that verse in the Bible that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, you know what? When we start delighting ourselves in the Lord, the Lord changes our desires. We get His desires, and He gives them to us. He cha- it changes what we think about. It changes how we spend our time. It changes how we handle our work. It changes our marriages. It changes our parenting. It changes our friendships. And it certainly gives us a deepening love for one another because He first loved us. And that stands out in the world. In short, he transforms us to be like himself, doesn't he? That's what it means to smell like Jesus. It means to be like Jesus. Paul, in the very next chapter in 2 Corinthians, is going to speak about how Christians are being transformed into Christ's likeness from one degree of glory to another. Isn't it amazing that in a church this diverse, People from many different cultures and countries, many different backgrounds, many different preferences, that we share Christ in common. Christ binds us together. And despite our differences, that there would be a similarity between us that we hope and pray will draw attention to our Savior. And I hope, I hope that when you meet in public together and you form friendships across cultures, that the world will take notice That they'll sit up and they'll say, why are those people sitting together in the food court? Why are they together? They're different. When all the while you share Jesus in common. Let's admit it. Let's admit it that crossing cultures is difficult. In some ways it's very easy for us to gather this many people from lots of different cultures in a room for two hours. But it's much harder to cross cultures and to build friendships across cultures, I want to encourage you, make the effort, Redeemer. Make the effort to build your relationships across cultures, in addition to the friendships that you have within your own culture. Have you reached out across a cultural divide lately to deepen a friendship with someone else in Redeemer who smells like the Savior? When you do, you demonstrate that the victory parade of God is filled with people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Christ is for everyone. Now Paul reminds us that there are two responses to the smell of Jesus on us. Two responses. To those that are being saved, the smell of Christ is the smell of the Savior, and that is the smell of life. And it is attractive. They come. They're drawn in. They want to know what's different. And we can tell them about Christ and the gospel. But to those who are perishing, the smell of Christ is the smell of a judge to a guilty person. And it is the smell of death. All the people in the world are going one of two different directions. 
That is the reality toward judgment or toward everlasting life. Praise God that He is the God who changes hearts and some people who right now are perishing can be turned to the road of life. But the responses to us and the smell of Christ on us will vary between those two responses. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised that as you become more like Christ, some will be drawn to you and some will be repulsed. Expect it. Don't be discouraged by it. Be reminded that your job as a Christian is to represent Christ well. And it's God's job to change hearts. We persuade, we love, we reach out, but ultimately God is the one who makes a heart change. Well, keep on living for Christ, keep walking with Christ, and keep speaking about Him. Paul goes on in the final verse to remind us to speak about Christ. That's part of what it means to smell like Christ, is to speak about Him. So look with me down at verse 17. That's the third and final section that I want to look at. It's about what it means to be God's genuine messengers. Look back at that verse. Now, just as Paul is explaining that we're the means by which God spreads the knowledge of himself throughout the whole world, he's overwhelmed with the responsibility, and he exclaims, who is sufficient for these things? Now, I think that maybe right here, Paul is contrasting himself with those so-called apostles that have infiltrated the Corinthian church, and they're boasting of their skills and their power and their reputations, And in effect, they're saying to the Corinthians, Paul is weak and he is an inadequate excuse for an apostle. We, on the other hand, are strong and skilled and famous. Obviously, God is with us. So Paul proceeds to answer where his sufficiency and where his adequacy comes from. What makes him a genuine apostle of God? First of all, he's sincere. Paul is not out for any other motive than to love the Corinthians and to share the gospel with them, teaching them, rebuking them, encouraging them, and he wants to please God. That's his motive. Love the Corinthians and please God. It's He is sincere. Secondly, he knows that he's been sent by God. His authority is from God himself. He doesn't come with a strong CV of accomplishments necessarily, He was commissioned by God. Thirdly, he knows that God is watching everything that he says and does. He says, we do this in the sight of God. In other words, we're conducting our ministry in such a way that we know that we're ultimately accountable to him. He will have to answer to God for his life and ministry. Paul knows that. And fourth, and lastly, Paul says he speaks In Christ. In other words, he speaks according to Christ. Christ is his Lord and Savior. Christ is his guide. And he speaks according to how the Spirit of Christ leads him. You know, all these things should apply to us as well. Not just individually to you, that you should be a genuine messenger, but collectively we should be a gen- we should be a collection of genuine messengers. And the smell of Christ should intensify because we're all together in a local church. And our witness should be sincere and genuine, just like Paul's. Our witness should be sincere. We speak without any other motive. 
We want to see people come to know Christ. We want to love them and we want to please God. We know, Redeemer Church, that we're sent. I don't know what the original reason you thought you come to do, came to Dubai for was, but I know the real reason. God sent you here and you are sent every day that you wake up and you get out of bed and you walk out that door. You are sent by God to be an emissary for Him. Thirdly, we're accountable. We're accountable, Redeemer Church. God is the only one that we report to as a church. And as church members, you know, as a church member, you've covenanted together with the other members of Redeemer Church. And you've taken on responsibilities to actually rule this church. This church is congregationally ruled. That is a responsibility that you're accountable to God for. And so, it's a very weighty thing that you together examine people and vote them into membership, making sure that only genuine Christians are members of the church. It's very weighty thing that you oversee the ministry of teaching in this church such that you make sure that anything that's taught from the pulpit is from the scriptures. It's very important that you take on your responsibility of shepherding the church together in church discipline to make sure that the name of Christ is not stained by unrepentant sin. In all these things, you and I are responsible to God. So take your membership in this church seriously. You do everything as a member here in the sight of God. And fourthly, you together, we together are vocal. We speak in Christ. We speak about Christ. And we speak the gospel. As a church, we speak to others about Him. When was the last time that you shared the gospel with someone? Maybe you can think of someone right now that's in your workplace or in your world, so to speak, that you haven't spoken to about Christ, maybe ever. I want you to write that name down. Write that name down on your bulletin. And I want to ask you to begin to pray for that person. Pray that you would have gospel opportunities to talk about Jesus, to ask them about their spiritual life, no matter how they define it. To talk to them about what it really means to know God, to be in a covenanted relationship with Him. And pray that you might get the opportunity to bring them to this gathering. There are seats open in here where people could come and hear about the gospel. I encourage you, Redeemer, share the gospel. And you know what? If you feel inadequate, you feel like, Brian, I just don't know how to do that very well. I stumble over my words all the time. Guess what? The only way to overcome that is to keep trying. You're not going to magically wake up one morning and be able to say it with great ease and smoothness. It's going to come because you're just practiced. Because it's regular thing in your life that you talk about Jesus and you talk about what it means to come to know Him. You know, some people here in this country will tell you not to speak about Jesus. Just recently, one institution told its students that they couldn't gather to read the Bible together. They said it's not allowed to read that particular book on campus. I'm not sure how they're going to police that. But you know what? We will speak about Christ no matter what. We will speak about Christ. We're sent by Him. We're accountable to Him, not them. 
And we worship him. And we love him. And because of that, we can't help it. We will talk about him. You know, because of that, he bought us at a high price when he won the victory on the cross. And we are being marched through life in this victory parade, making him known. And so, like Paul, we say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that he conquered us in order to make us his own. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that while we were still enemies of yours, you sent your son Jesus. You communicated to us. And through people who came to know him truly, to be in a covenanted relationship with him, you made them smell like Jesus and you put them in our lives and we came to know him too. We praise you that you did that for us. We praise you that you conquered us, that we are your grateful captives. Oh Lord, will you use us for your purposes? In Christ's name, amen.